Welcome to today's episode of the Purdue ASME American Society of Mechanical Engineers podcast, which aims to provide an outlet for not only Purdue students, but all students, learners, and aspiring professionals around the world to learn from experienced professionals in the field of engineering and beyond. I'm your co-host, Liam Kaufman, and joining me today is my fellow co-host, Agathea Theroon, and I'll have Aggie introduce our highly respected guest today. Purdue University's College of Engineering is renowned for its innovative approach, and at its forefront is Dr. Arvind Rahman, the new John A. Edwardson Dean of Engineering. Born in Uttar Pradesh, India, to immigrant parents, Rahman's early life was shaped by adaptability and a strong foundation in STEM, thanks to his mother. Pursuing mechanical engineering at the leading Indian Institute of Technology, his insatiable curiosity led him to Purdue for his master's, followed by a PhD at the University of California, Berkeley. Beyond his accolades, Dr. Rahman's journey is a testament to passion, resilience, and the drive to understand and innovate. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Rahman. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Aggie and uh, Liam. Nice to be here. Um, mechanical engineering has always been, I've always known that's what I wanted to do. Um, and that's the way my path went. I've been an ASME member now for 30 years, so Emmy's right in there, right? So I, I love that. it. It's I'm just I never had a, a doubt what I wanted to do. So just delighted to be here with you guys. Awesome. Um, so getting right into it, like taking it way back, one of the things just reading about your background that you mentioned a lot is the influence your mother mm -hmm. has had on you, your family and your life. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk about how your mother influenced you when you were really young and really pushed you to do the, the things you did? Well, yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to. She um, so my mom, um, again, you know, she passed away the year I came to Purdue. So, um, you know, it's been a long time now. And so it's partly because of that kind of looking back, I realized more and more the longer-term influence. And when people are around, you don't necessarily like, you know, you know, you take things for granted, right? So, but then longer term, you then realize, oh, my God, like I'm doing this because of that, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so it's coming to sharper focus. But um, she was a uh, chemistry teacher. So background is... Um, she grew up in a family, as you said, an immigrant family from South India who moved to North India, a totally different language. And she was so smart, she graduated high school when she was 15. Wow. So she skipped grade three times, <laughs> right? So really, really smart. And, uh, uh, you know, she uh, had, uh, you know, two sons, my, my brother and I, and he, he's, uh, he's in the UK. He's a professor of computer science. And... Um, we grew up to a really sharp uh, mom who was so organized and got things done, like just knew how to get things done on time, just organized. Um, she was uh, energetic um, and always got things done on time. And she was sharp, of course. You know, uh, she, you don't skip grades so many times because of that. Uh, she became a chemistry teacher, right? And um, and I remember I had this awkward moment one time where so I went to the same school because, you know, we got a, uh, you know, discount uh, for being, you know, family of the staff and stuff. So that, that was natural for us to go to that school. And uh, so I remember one time I had her in my class, right? And uh, uh, it's an awkward situation. You kind of stand out and raise your hand, you know, when people are asking questions and stuff. And. Um, you know, she was uh, asking for, uh, I remember, I think this may have been, um, oh, I don't know, uh, 
uh, freshman year of high school. I think that's what she was teaching chemistry then. And her question was something about um, G- asking the question about what, what's the chemical reaction that leads to water, you know, production of water, right? And I'm sitting, um, I'm sitting in my, you know, as a ninth grader, and, uh, and it all came to me. I was like, oh, my God, I know what the answer to this question is, right? And um, actually, no, her question was what electrical process can be used to produce water, right? Oh, okay. That's what her question was. And I remember, like, just this light bulb in my mind going, oh, you know, I know how water is produced. Uh, you know, there's lightning, that lightning that happens, um, you know, in the clouds. Um, that must be producing this water. Somehow, you know, makes the chemistry happen, action happen, and, you know, and water drops fall down, and it's got to do with, you know, lightning. And um, I was stupid, of course, you know, in retrospect, it has nothing to do with how water is produced. But, uh, but she was uh, kind enough and said, um, why don't you sit down? Let's ask someone else <laughs> to try this, you know. But I was so sure that it just came to me at that moment. That's got to be it, and it was all wrong. So um, I guess she um, she was um, uh, you know open to my making mistakes. I never got any you know. It was like the way of saying, okay, this is great, but no, um, nothing negative came from that, right? So she encouraged those kind of things, but then she had to like not seem like, you know, playing favorites in the class, you know, and so on. And so it all worked out like that. So um, so really good memories of, you know, those kind of conversations, right? You know, how does chemistry come in day-to-day life about things, right? So that was, I think, um, really uh, important for me. And the fact that she was really driven and um, she, she got uh, her degrees, her education while she had kids. Wow. She had a bachelor's degree in chemistry, a master's in education, all while taking care of kids. Um, I mean, like, you know, if, if someone can do all that stuff, you know, they could do a lot of things as well. So I think that's the source of uh, inspiration. Um, you know, the other thing I feel is that um, what I feel about that is that, you know, people like her talent, you know, one thing that motivates me today is, you know, the thought that if she, you know, didn't have all these family duties and all the society that, you know, came on her, I mean, she could easily, I mean, she could have been a medical researcher, which is what she wanted to do. She could have figured out a cure for cancer and stuff. So part of, like, uh, my passion or takeaway from the story is this idea of, you know, people realizing their fullest potential, right, and just making sure that um, as best as we can, all members of society make sure that talent, the potential of talent is not stifled uh, do you do anything else? So that's another thing I take away um, is there are lots of talented people. Uh, not everyone has a chance to shine. And we got to figure out, you know, unblock all those things. That's and, a really great story. Yeah. Did, did your mother's background have any influence on you choosing to become a dean of engineering or even pursuing an engineering track? Or did you know you wanted to get into engineering from a very early stage? Well, I, you know, I certainly, I loved physics, by the way. And I loved organic chemistry, but I loved physics. And it was natural for me to come to, you know, mechanical engineering from there. But, um, but uh, to be perfectly honest, I mean, she didn't particularly care about engineering or not. But what she did worry about was, hey, you're going on for a master's? Okay, that's okay. And you're going to do a PhD? Are you out of your mind? You know, why don't you just do an MBA and get a job, right? That was that was the kind of thing I, I faced with her. Um, she, she liked, I guess, the fact that we were, uh, both my brother and I were doing, he did computer science, I was doing engineering. But uh, 
I think she didn't understand well, why this career of a PhD and you know more and more studies. You know, do I want to get a life or something? I think that was the key thing that um, that she was worried about. So no, um, uh, that was not there was no connection there. I don't think. So one of the things that I read about was that you almost had a uh, a shift of mindset where you went from thinking about your own potential to the potential you could yep. unlock in other people. Yeah. And so as you just mentioned, your mother, although she didn't do all of those things because she had you guys, um, the influence she had on you could arguably have a bigger impact in the people that you're affecting. So how do you, uh, I guess, strike that balance or, or think about that question as to unlocking your own potential, but then also helping unlock the potential of other people? Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a really good question. Um, well, let me tell you what happened in my case, too, is personally, um, you know, after being at Purdue for 23 years as a faculty member, I reached a point where, I mean, I was doing great stuff. I thought, you know, my lab research, all that was great. But I uh, reached a point where I realized that helping others succeed was uh was more impactful and not everyone reaches that conclusion at the same time in their careers you reach a point where you realize maybe it's because you, you just understand how things work you're able to help people you know when you're younger perhaps you're not able to help people that well um, but reached a point where I felt I was able to help other people better and I reached a you know important conclusion in my life that you know if I spend the next um, 15 years just diving deep doing my own things I'll have an impact, but not as much as I would if I helped others succeed. And that's when I kind of decided I uh, throw my hat in the ring for for the dean position. That's really cool. Yeah. What do you what do you see in um, or what characteristics do you think you can observe in people um, that kind of like gives you uh, that lets you know that they have potential? What what are some like uh, what are some characteristics that kind of like draw you towards that? It's a great question. I mean, who knows, right? Who who knows who's got potential or not? But I like to see um, fire in the belly, like right? a drive. Drive. Right. I like to see drive, and um, I don't. Um, I don't necessarily see people based on what titles they have, where they are, you know, what position they're in, or you know, where they're from. But I think the key ingredient for me is. Uh, drive and that doesn't come out naturally. I mean, sometimes you could be talking to someone in the context of, "Hey, I'm going to work out a ho- homework problem and ME, I don't know, three or five or one of those things," and you may not necessarily see the drive there. It has to, like, it takes a while to kind of figure out that what people are passionate about and where the drive is. It's not entirely obvious, uh, so it does need conversations. And I, I find myself often trying to. Trying to figure that out when I speak with um, well students or you know colleagues of mine to really understand um, where it is, but I think that drive um, is important. It is it is important, and uh, it's different from you know I know all of you have gone through this when you're choosing to come here and you know uh, do things. I'm sure you had your motivations change, uh, but you know you could have a drive to say you know I'm going to become. I don't know, computer engineering design, the you know the next chip, so on, so whatever. You could do that, and that's fine. But um, even if you choose not to, there's an underlying hunger that's sort of leading you to a certain place. Maybe the underlying thing there is, 
you want to use your skills to produce a gadget that's going to have a large impact on people or something, right? So even if does, your pathway doesn't turn out to be exactly what you thought you were passionate about, that underlying drive puts you roughly in the same direction of doing things. And maybe it happens through, I don't know, real estate business. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But if you abstract these things out, uh, that hunger does, when you empower yourself to follow that, it does reach you roughly to you know where where you're hoping to, if people allow you to do it. So I think that's important. And on that note, what advice do you have for people who are trying to find that passion, that are trying to find where their drive is? Well, I think uh, it's really important to have a lot of diverse experiences. When I was um, in your shoes, uh, I must admit I was not doing a whole lot of that. I was just focused on the academic side. It's it's only after I came to Purdue, you know, in my faculty hat, that I really started. I think traveling the world, doing a lot of global experiences. Um, and that's where, you know, I think it started to uh, click to me that what's essential is to have a lot of experience. And uh, what's also important is learning from other people, right? So when I started doing these trips and moving around, I learned a whole lot from alumni, you know, learning about what their lives are, you know, what worked for them, what doesn't work for them. I mean, it's it's a treasure trove of information, right? That if you can just go across, understand those kind of things. So a lot more human-to-human -human interaction, I think experiences uh, would be very helpful. Uh, it happened. It helped me much later in my life. Uh, but when I was in your shoes, I was not even doing like a quarter of what you all are doing. <laughs> Do you think there's like a mindset that can help uh, help people discover that hunger, or a way to, I guess, approach the things you're doing? Yeah, I don't know. I, I do. I do. I think you have a point there. I think in some cases uh, that hunger can be latent, and people don't really know it until they're exposed to a certain experience, and they go, "Oh my God, I didn't know this." That you know, got this hidden passion. And so I think part of the uh, idea of gaining these diverse experiences is precisely to see is there something that's going to make you, like, "Oh my God, I want to do this," right? And you know, for a long time. Um, so yeah, sometimes it's uh, it's latent, and it has to be woken up somehow, right? So it's all about experiences and these discussions. And it's also like sometimes difficult because for a lot of people they have a lot of passions, and it's hard to choose right. what they should focus in. I know for me, like I wish I could live five, six different times and pursue a different major every single every single lifetime if I could, because indeed, uh, yeah, I just I just can't <laughs> choose what I want to specialize in or get a master's in. Um, and I know a lot of people have that same problem too, and it's it's hard to choose. Did you ever have a problem like that? And if so, how did you kind of uh, figure out where you wanted to go? Well, you know, this is again, um, I, I sort of knew because I'd only been doing high school projects. I liked physics, classical physics at least, and that kind of leads to mechanical engineering um, more or less. And uh, see, what I would say is because I've had many discussions with students worrying about majors and you know what, what you do. And you know, I think at the end of the day, a Purdue engineering degree, it's not so much about what you major in or what you minor in. It really is not because I've seen all kinds of combinations. You know, you could be in, um, I don't know, the space industry and maybe you've done a biological engineering degree here. Uh, you could have, um, you know, you could have done uh, civil engineering and perhaps you're working for a um, biological biomedical company, right? Mm -hmm. So. Uh, or you could be doing real estate. Keep in mind, though, that about 50% of engineering graduates from Purdue don't remain engineers long-term, right? 
So it's not it's not so much what what the degree really is about. It tends to be if you speak to alumni, it's really about you know making you think a certain way. It's pushing you, right? I don't think it, this degree was is easy for any one of you. It's tough. It is tough. A Purdue engineering degree is tough. So you, basically, what you're training yourself for is able to to be able to succeed in a really tough, tough setting, right? Where you really have to work hard, you really have to compete, you really have to study, right, and do your homework and so on. And that sets you up for success in ways that, and it's about a way of thinking about problems, right? Um, so what I would say is. I feel that what degree you do doesn't really matter so much in the long long terms of things. So uh, it's not as important. So you do something that makes sense right now. Um, you know, uh, when when you're when you're walking in a fog, right? You can't see too far. What do you do? You can't say I wish to see far out in the distance and know where I want to do. You can't. What you can see is the next uh, you know a few yards ahead of you, and you just walk those, and you know it'll clear up. You'll, you'll know where you are. So I would suggest not worrying too much about this. Just based on current interests, just do what you're doing. In. But try to diversify your experiences, and you'll know. You'll know. That's a great analogy. <laughs> I really like that. If, it, uh, if it's so unpredictable, because you can only see the first step, you can't see into the fog, do you think it makes sense to set goals, say, like, I don't know, three years out, five years out, ten years out? Or do you think that's kind of... Uh, just ineffective because you have no idea what you're going to be doing? Uh, I think life goals are not a bad thing. You know, career goals, it's very hard. Life goals are also hard, but, you know, it's good to keep you, um, to, to, to pay attention to not let too much time pass. Um, I'll tell you, this is a mistake I sort of made. Um, you know, I, I did a transition from Purdue Mechanical Engineering to, you know, UC Berkeley's PhD program. And I remember I was very, you know, glad to spend as, as much time as possible. I, I wanted to take a lot of classes. I wasn't looking at, you know, the times times ticking. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, when I got married, you know, uh, started a family, I was really old, right? So now, in retrospect, you go back and go, all right, you know, how old am I going to be when I have a grandchild? And it's like, you know, maybe I wanted to be a little younger to have the energy right, to interact with a grandchild and so on. Um, so I think having life plans is not a, you know, roughly, nothing mm -hmm. goes according to plan there is not a bad idea. Um, but um, career plans also, but just be flexible that they change. Everything changes. Would you say that having strict career goals, um, even short or long term, can kind of make people less open-minded to venturing out into different fields that they may have not looked into previously? Potentially, but you know, like I said, um, I think I think career goals will change all the time based on your experiences. Um, you know, one thing I will say is once you choose your next step, let's say you've chosen to come to Purdue, you've chosen to come to mechanical engineering, right? So uh, you got to focus on that. Right, that's very clear. Committed to something, go down the path four years, five years, you know, make it all work. But during that experience, it's not so much about the degree as maximizing your experiences across. Mm -hmm. It's you know, degree plus what? What else did you get? Uh, I worked at NASA. I worked at the startup company. I did an internship with the government. Uh, by the way, you should think about doing that. Uh, we have a new program. Um, 
Purdue Engineering, we're going to be launching, which is trying to build pathways for engineering students for public service internships in your congressional delegations, for example, or in Washington, D.C., right? Um, so, you know, I keep telling students it's not so much about um, checking the box and I did an internship or what, what did you do in it? Where was it? Uh, it was just in a Fortune 500 company, but did you really get um, trained? Did, did something meaningful come out of it? Um, did you have a experience in the government? Did you work for a startup company? They're very different experiences, by the way, uh, all of these. And so I just encourage stay the path, but uh, beyond the curriculum, really diversify your portfolio of experiences as much as possible. And um, that's what I would suggest. It's awesome. Um, as the dean of engineering, you're trying to make decisions to maximize the impact mm -hmm. that the School of Engineering has. Um, but that's a pretty daunting uh, challenge, I'd say. It's pretty hard to even measure impact. Mm -hmm. So uh, how do you approach that question? How do you measure impact? Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you make good decisions? Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, uh, the, way, the way I think about this is, well, you know, the president has talked about the notion of Purdue being the most, you know, a, a consequential uh, college. And, you know, I thought that was an interesting framework, consequential to who and, you know, what does that mean and so on. But if you think about what engineering is about, it's about three things. It has the element of creativity. It's the Lillian Gilberts amongst us. It's the uh, Da Vinci's amongst us, you know, the, the brilliant geniuses amongst us, all of you. Uh, it's about adding value or coming up with solutions, the practical side of it. And the third is for people in society, right? These three things are really important. So when you think about that being engineering, it's very easy to understand what consequentiality and maximizing impact really mean. Uh, and it has to do with scale. When you're a very large program at Purdue Engineering, the impact that we're going to have is obviously going to be more. You could be a tiny program. You could be really good. But, you know, what's the magnitude of the impact you would have? It's smaller. So you need to be large. And you need to be, you need to be really good. You need to be excellent at what you do. So excellence at scale, I think, is a uh, prerequisite for you know maximizing impact. But impact is about that last piece also, people in society, right? And asking the question about in what way can we have purpose and really um, maximize our impact, positive impact on society. Now, you all know that we're in a land-grant uh, you know, school. Uh, land-grant school has three missions, right? So if you think, apply this lens on the three missions we have, you know, education, there is research, and there is engagement, right? Those are three. Think of what is it in these, in these three, you know, parts that we can do to maximize our impact on the world. So let's go to education. You know, we can teach well, we can do so many things, but when you think about it this way, in my mind, what we really need to do is that, uh, hopefully by the end of this decade, that we want to become home to... Uh, the largest, best prepared, and most diverse engineering talent pool in the nation. And it's very clear why this is going to be very consequential when you put all this together. The largest pool of engineers, which is also the largest, best prepared pool of engineers, that's great. Why? Because this is a time where, um, you know, we're facing a situation where, you know, the number of Americans entering college is continuing to decrease. I don't know if you know about this, but 2008, there was a dip in uh, fertility rates in the United States. And so um, there's going to be an enrollment cliff coming up in 2025. So there's going to be about half a million to a million less Americans graduating from high school. 
And all this couldn't be happening at a worse time. It's at a time when the nation needs many, many, many more engineers, not less. Right? And so that's, that's the calling of the moment. We have to really increase. We have to increase the number of engineers. Where are they going to come from? It's going to be from the missing millions. You know, we need many more women engineers. We need many more first-generation uh, college students. We need many more uh, students who are, um, you know, uh, from under-resourced uh, schools that don't have the ability to be able to take online classes necessarily uh, that helps them or have AP classes. You know, how do, we, how do we do all that? It's about the missing millions. Otherwise, business will go on as, as usual. So the idea about really aiming for the largest, best-prepared, and most diverse talent pool is, I think, our calling in the education space, right? So that kind of, of the many things you can do, like if you focus that on that as an outcome, then that makes, that becomes very consequential. And we have similar things for research, you know, preeminent research impact. Well, what does research impact mean? Well, if you're really able to do big things that are changing society, for example, we have a, a research center here. Um, it's an engineering research center um, and produce a part of it. Now, you all know that uh, you know, if any one of you has driven electric vehicles, it's a problem charging vehicles. Like you don't, you go to a charging station, it's not entirely reliable all the time, right? And in fact, um, uh, Secretary uh, Buttigieg, there was an article uh, in the Wall Street Journal that said that, you know, he was having problems with his electric vehicle charging it, right? Well, uh, so researchers in the center, it's called the Aspire Center and produce a part of it, are trying to change the paradigm and saying instead of us taking vehicles to charge a charging station, what if the charge comes to us as we're driving? Imagine you're driving on a highway. The roads. The roads wirelessly transfer things, you know, the charge to you. Right? That's what they're working on. But what's really cool about this is that this is a $27, $26 million center with multiple universities, 90 companies, and departments of transportation working together on this, right? In fact, as we speak, just this uh, spring semester, they're going to install quarter-mile section of US 231 north of here. It's going to have this charging facility in one part of US 231. What's interesting is it's being designed to charge heavy-duty trucks. You know, such infrastructure does exist for smaller vehicles, but why this is really important for heavy-duty trucks is that's what's going to make the business case for a tollway, right? Because otherwise, if you don't charge trucks, you're not going to make money, you know, to, to be able to operate it in a sustainable fashion. And the other thing they're trying to do is they're trying to do coreless technology. Without cores, it's just going to be coils sitting underneath, and they're able to charge, you know, semis driving on the on the highway. But this is an example of the kind of centers when you big do big things, right, with a lot of companies, with government, the kind of things that come out of it clearly are going to have an impact, a big difference on society. So one of the things we need to do is to focus on those kind of things, right? We really have to scale up those kind of centers. Uh, but impact happens in many ways. It also happens with some faculty who publish things with their graduate students and postdocs. Uh, but we need to focus a lot more on what what influence that that research has, right? So not just on, hey, I published. It's not about the numbers. It's about, well, what difference is it making? You know, to what extent can we maybe use it to get patents that get picked up and licensed? To what extent can we influence policy? To what influence can we influence other scientists, right? Uh, so there's a way of narrowing the scope and thinking about, well, what, like, you always begin with who you're trying to make a difference on and kind of work backwards on what can we do to really maximize that, that effect, right? Um, and the same thing for engagement. I'm 
I call it advancing our state and nation. What can we do to advance our state and nation? I think we can do a lot within Indiana that we haven't done before. I think we really need to um, have really strong economic development partnerships, uh, community development partnerships, workforce development partnerships within the state. And I think we need to help make uh, Indiana the startup heartland of America. All these things are very consequential, impactful things to do. So that's how I look at it. I look at you know land grant, what's our mission? Within the mission, you look at each part of the mission and look at what is the outcome that's going to really have deepest positive impact on society. And it comes down to something like this. Now, we all got to just figure out how to do it now. Yeah. <laughs> Purdue is a leading university. I mean, top 10 best value, top 10 public, top 10 engineering. Every single internship I've had, there are more Purdue students in that internship class than any other university. What do you think, specifically from Purdue Engineering, has led to such a high standard um, and, and kind of makes Purdue engineers so attractive in the eyes of employers? And, and what are those opportunities that students should be taking advantage of to become those attractive engineers? Yeah, yeah I, this, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't quite know how it's had, but Purdue has always had this, always. And I've known this from alumni I've met who've graduated a long time ago, that there is something about this place. I, I can't, I don't know what it is. And so what you're walking into is something that is a, a culture that has existed for decades. This culture of, you know, excellence um, of a land-grant uh, university uh, that makes sure that uh, we're defined not those, not defined by those we exclude from an education, by, but by define ourselves by all those we include in the education, right? So it's always been what I call um, the wide doors of opportunity, right? Uh, that's what Purdue represents for me, for all of you, uh, et cetera. So I think part of it is uh, history and culture. Um, and I think, um, I, I, I don't know, I don't know how to explain it, right? It's, 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 it's how it is, it's a very special place. And I think we're just fortunate that we've had leadership at key points that made sure that we're not losing track of who we are, um, our culture, our emphasis on excellence at scale hasn't gone away. I think it does help that we're not in a big city. Uh, maybe all of you would like to be in a big city, but I think it actually helps. Um, uh, it allows us to grow. There's more, you know, you can focus on your studies a lot more. It's a more of a community feel. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's part of it, too. Absolutely. I love that you used the word paradigm yeah. earlier to describe the the innovation that's right. going from Purdue. I think like just with that car example, like everyone thinks about electric cars and they're like, uh, but it can only buy, it can only drive a max of like 300 miles and then I got to charge it. At least that's my, right. my parents are looking at electric cars and that's all they say. They say, ah, but I can't drive far enough. But then if you shift your thinking and it's like, if we can charge while we're driving, well now we can, we can drive forever and that's right. no longer a problem. Um, kind of bringing that around to something you mentioned, you said that the Midwest could be the Silicon Valley of the US in the future. Um, that's almost like, I'd say, a paradigm shift in its own right there, because at least for me, and I think maybe a lot of people, they just, they don't see the Midwest as really a startup incubator. So how do you, I guess, face that challenge and try to put Purdue and just the Midwest in general to be a hub for entrepreneurship and startups? Well, uh, great question. <clears throat> I, we obviously don't have an answer, and we, we all need to figure this out, right? How does, how does all this happen? Um, one thing I will say is think about this. In engineering, we have 16,000 students, 11,000 undergrads, and 5,000 graduate students, right? So let's say one in 100. One in 100, those rare, rare students that go 
I'm going to take this off. I'm going to start a business. Right? That would mean 160 businesses coming out right here every year from students, right? Think about that. Just our scale means even if it's that one in 100 who is the entrepreneur, there's a lot of talent, ability to do this here, right? So um, <clears throat> we're trying many different things. We're going to try many different things here. Um, we are, um, uh, you know, discussing with the School of Business, you know, how we can create um, pathways for students to actually start businesses while they're undergrads uh, still here. Um, how do we help them? Uh, we obviously have um, a whole Purdue Innovates ecosystem. I think Indianapolis is going to help us because the venture capital environment in Indianapolis is very, very different. But I will say, um, you know, going back to the idea of Silicon Valley, I don't think it's about Silicon Valley. I think it's about um, an entrepreneurship hub. I think what we end up doing here in the Midwest is going to look different. It's not. I don't want. I don't want us to be the Fang kind of place, Facebook and all that kind of stuff. I think. What the Midwest is going to really be excelling at is uh, what our president has called hard tech. The idea of not just the bits, but bits applied to atoms, you know, all put together. It's going to be hard tech. It's about physical things and um, and digital things, you know, combined. Um, and it's almost a natural transition uh, for uh, for the entire Midwest because this is the Rust Belt. This is where manufacturing is 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 key. I don't know if you know, but Indiana has the highest concentration uh, per capita of manufacturing jobs in the United States. Um, and so, you know, we think of corn and soybeans, but manufacturing is big, you know, here in the state. So just imagine that. If imagine you could have a situation where all kinds of startups are coming uh, at the interface of applying, I don't know, digital transformation to all things, all physical things, all kinds of things, right? It this would be the place to do it. Yeah, there's uh, so much there's so much potential for vertical right. integration yeah. as soon as you start a business. Yeah, I mean, you just think of the fundamentals, right? Uh, think of applying um, digital approaches to agriculture. Think of applying digital approaches to manufacturing. Think of applying digital approaches to moving and distributing things. We are the crossroads of America, right? Uh, distribution hub. Uh, think of applying this to healthcare. Between all those places, there's so much to do. Um, and I think that that's where a lot of the startups are going to be really happening. And manufacturing is the supply that drives it all. So I think yeah. that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're also a hotspot. We get tons of funding from major companies. And with our sister university coming out in Indianapolis, that's also a, a great new potential for, for incoming students. And what do you think are some policies that you have in mind, some goals um, for Purdue Engineering to kind of push us in this direction of being the leaders in hard tech? Well, I mean, Purdue University has an initiative called Institute of Physical AI that is really going to be investing in um, what we call physical AI, AI applied to these four things I spoke about. You know, we, we make, we grow, um, we move, and we thrive, right? So all those elements of it, how do you apply to that? So there's a whole initiative. Purdue as a whole is investing a lot in that. So really excited about it. And I think it's a natural. All of you in ME, uh, many of you are in ME, but you already see how much more computing is involved in everything you're doing. A more uh, CS sort of savviness and everything in computer you know, coding. And so I think uh, what's going to happen is uh, all the different, there is already a process happening where all the different engineering disciplines are getting 
all of you are getting more savvy uh, about computing and how it applies to, you know, and by the way, you could all do a minor in AI also now and all those things. So all that is going to happen. And um, I think what's going to happen here is that it's the students who know the hard the hard tech side, right? So you all know how power plants work. You all know how engines work. You all know, I don't know, how everything works, right? More or less, right? And then you take the idea of how do you take the digital transformation and AI piece. And then once you know both elements, you got to have, in my opinion, you got to have domain knowledge of the physical domain you're working in, right? So it's very hard to be just a data person and come in and say, I'm going to solve this, you know, recycling problem, you know, without knowing the physical world of, you know, recycling and waste or whatever, right? You need to know that. So I think... Mm -hmm having the domain knowledge that all uh, engineering students have in engineering and then bringing in the digital side of it, you've got the key ingredients for that. Now, what we need to do is to figure out ways by which students are not just thinking of Fortune 500 companies for their careers. So that we do have that culture here of everyone thinks of Fortune 500 companies. Uh, you know, there are other places that are sitting, for example, near Silicon Valley, and uh, they know the names of... Um, you know, the top unicorns that have come out of, uh, you know, other students. If I ask our students here, tell me the most successful startup companies that, you know, your, um, you know, folks before you did last five years, it'll be hard to, you know, uh, find that out. So I think it's a bit of a cultural thing, like um, also to kind of know what are those catchy startup companies and who's doing well. It takes time to build all that, of Absolutely. course. Of course, it comes from the fact that, you know, industries love absolutely love uh, our students, and so um, they keep coming. Uh, the, the roundtable is fantastic, right? So, But these are just a few thoughts. I think it takes a little um, thinking about uh, changing the culture a little bit as well. But in terms of skills, you all have the skills to do this. Absolutely. Dr. Ahmed, thank you so much for all your great advice. I really enjoyed hearing about your journey and all your tips you have for students. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Yeah, no, great to be on here. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Um, for our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you really enjoyed our conversation today. Feel free to check out the timestamps for the various topics we covered today. If you have any feedback, guest requests, comments, or any other inquiries, please contact us at asme.podcast at gmail.com, or you can fill out the Google form link below. As always, we want to connect with our listeners on LinkedIn, so feel free to check those out in the description too. We hope you'll join us on the next episode.